Jesus did say, why have you forsaken me? when he wasn't forsaken, the Father was present. You know, David is who Jesus is quoting. David was never forsaken by God. And so part of my faith journey was realizing these laments are written for me to pray, that God is, was way bigger God than I realized, that I had permission to say, I feel like you have abandoned me. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. Hi, everyone. This is Colleen Swindoll-Thompson, Director of Reframing Ministries at Insight for Living and the host of the Reframing Ministry podcast that you're listening to today, where we are offering hope, healing, help, and probably a good dose of humor as I get to talk with my friend, Sandra Glon. Sandra, thank you for being with my us pleasure. today. Sandra is a professor at Dallas Seminary, a multi-published author of both fiction and nonfiction works, a journalist, speaker, who advocates for thinking and transforming our lives. Dr. Glon has published more than 20 books. That's a whole lot of books. I'm almost 60. What can I say? <laughs> Don't tell. We won't know. <laughs> Regarding bioethics, sexuality, and biblical womanhood. She's also written 11 Bible studies in the Coffee Cup Bible Study Series, which I absolutely love that title. Thank you. Regularly blogs at EngageBible.org site for women in Christian leadership and owner of Aspire Productions. At the end of this, we'll be able to tell you how to get a hold of her. But Sandra, you have one book that hit hard um, when I heard the title of it called When Empty Arms Become Heavy Burdens, Encouragement for Couples Facing Infertility. Infertility, I think, is probably one of the least discussed topics mm. for women, Could but be. one of the most painful issues. Tell me what brought that on. The book certainly came out of my own experience. Um, I'm now an adoptive parent. My daughter's 23 years old, but before we had our happy ending, if you want to call it that. Um, we had three years of no success medically, followed by seven early pregnancy losses, followed by three failed adoptions before we finally had the successful adoption of our daughter. And through that time, a lot of people will say things like, well, it'll happen, you know, just be patient. And I really had to wrestle through, what if it doesn't? Is God good? Will I trust him even if I never have a happy ending? Mm. And that book was finished before we did have a successful adoption, but I did not go back and add that story because I felt like most of my readers really, my, my how my story ended was really kind of irrelevant to what they're having to work through, which is that very question, is God good? Will I trust him even if I don't ever have the ending that I'm hoping for? And interestingly enough, a lot of my single friends who read it just because they love me and wanted to read my book said, you know, those are some of the those who want to be married said that that's what I'm dealing with too. It's it's more universal maybe than you think. It's the unanswered question. It's the thing that is our longing. Right. And for you, it happened to be children. For others, it may be a spouse. For others, it may be healing from abuse. Right. I mean, there's a variety of ways that God brings us to our end. I'm hearing 10 attempts that didn't work. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking right. dollar sign, dollar sign, right. dollar sign. Yeah. How did you and your husband yeah. work through that? That's a great question because it really was, it started out as a medical crisis and then it really 
began to be a financial crisis. It became a marital crisis as so often. My husband was super supportive. He's a strong believer. But for many couples, as was true for us, infertility is the first major loss you go through together. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time you realize we don't handle grief the same. And where you might have always felt like you're on the same page, uh, he internalized and I was a verbal processor. And I think at times his eyes were glazing over with, you know, <laughs> what is left to talk about? <laughs> and I'm thinking you must not be as committed as I am to this cause if you're not thinking about it very much. I mean, that in and of itself can be super polarizing. So and then it was a spiritual crisis. I'm the fourth of five kids. I loved being in a big family. I thought the harmony on road trips was awesome in a family of seven. I like the insanity on Christmas morning. If you <laughs> sort of picture big fat Greek wedding, that was me. That's the loud family. And I loved it. And so to face the prospect of never having children, I, as a Christian woman, didn't really have any other vision for what my life could look like. I had a very narrow view of womanhood. And so I, I believe, obviously, that being a mother is super important, but it's not the highest calling for a woman. It's following Christ is the highest calling. And so if I was going to have a non-traditional, as far as Christianity was concerned, non-traditional marriage and, you know, sort of looking at the whole spectrum of my life, I, I had a crisis of womanhood, of who am I? What was I made for if this isn't what God has for me? And I've assumed that this is a really high calling, maybe the highest calling. And I have to go back to Genesis and relook at where did I miss the boat? How much was that American Christian subculture? How much is that of that is biblical? You know, um, and so that contributed to the longings as well. I had to work through all of that. I mean, do you associate, I think, first of Hannah when she goes right. into the church to pray and it's assumed in her grief that she's, she's drunk. drunk. Yeah. And I'm thinking, right. you have no idea what she's going through. Right. Were you ever offended at what people constantly? I'm <laughs> constantly, and 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 I think part of what makes it hard, and you know this so well, is because people mean well. So then you don't feel justified in being super frustrated or even angry with them because you know they didn't mean to hurt you; they're trying to help you. But things like uh, somebody told me, buy a maternity top to demonstrate your faith that God will keep His promise. And I'm thinking, God has not promised me a child. Like, God has promised me his presence. He's, he's promised me a lot of things, but I can't claim a promise. Um, and others would say, you know, just wait, your time will come. And again, it was intended as kind, but it's like there's no guarantee that I my time will come. I really have to work through, again, is God good? Well, I trust him. And, and what does that mean? Uh, how do I live with this longing the rest of my life? and offer it to God as a, as a sacrifice. In Scripture, too, it was um, women who weren't able to have children right. were rejected. Right. Yeah. So, it was much more difficult for them, actually. I mean, I could, I could go to school and get a PhD. I could go get a job and, and find meaningful work. Once I worked through the ethics of all that, I mean, I had a really, really conservative view of what women could do. What was and that What was that view? My view was that if you're married, you're supposed to be a mom and it's a woman's highest calling. And if you go get a job, then it's because you have sold out to the world system of what's important and, you know, making money. <laughs> I had no sense that your job is your ministry, even if it's not vocational ministry, right? That that I just had, I had this idea that overseas is a mission field, but somehow I didn't think 
wherever you are can be a mission field. And so again, I had to work through a lot of just wrong thinking about that. I It was really interesting to come back to Proverbs 31 and see this woman is buying and selling belts in real estate and reaching for their hand to the needy. And, you know, her children are there, but, you know, they're not. We She's through, a go-getter. She is a go-getter. <laughs> and I was so thankful to sort of have permission to you know, have a different sort of ideal Christian womanhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, little did I know that I would end up at Dallas Seminary. It's interesting there is that, again, I didn't think women should even go to seminary. Mm-hmm. So I've often joked that I should just cover my foot with chocolate because I'm going to stick it in my mouth so much that it may <laughs> well, at least taste good. Because, you know, here I was, somebody who opposed women going to seminary, and then here I was not only going to seminary, but then offered a job at the seminary. And just again, think, you know, now that I look back, I'm so pleased with the loving hand of God. It's obvious in my life, but in the dark, you, you know, you well know, um, you, you can't always see the picture and uh, you don't always get, get to see it in this life. So I feel blessed in that way that I have some sense of some of his purposes as well. Being your age now, we're talking to some individuals, men and women, who mm-hmm. are on the side of arguing over you don't, you're not listening to me yeah. because I'm in grief. Right. And he's thinking, you have no idea. I'm trying to pay the bills. Right. Yeah, and yeah. they are at odds with each mm-hmm. other. What do you say to them? Yeah. One of the wisest pieces of pieces of advice I received in the middle of all that was somehow I had learned, it might have been in a Christian marriage conference, I'm not sure, but I had learned that your spouse is supposed to meet all your needs. And that is just not true at all. The body of Christ, you know, is there because we were an eye or we're an ear or we're a fingernail, but no one person can meet all your needs. And, and you know, God is the ultimate mediator. And so once I recognized that this was not a failure of my husband to listen well, mm-hmm. this was my uh, expecting too much out of a good marriage. Uh, and so I began to get together with other friends who are going for infertility. And it was really funny because the women, we'd sit around talking about medical treatment and all the all the latest tech and the guys would go fishing or they'd go, you know, they they didn't, most of them, some of them did, but most of them didn't have the same need to think about it as much because they weren't taking their temperatures every day. And even if there was male factor infertility, it was much more rigorous in terms of what the women were having to do at two so we couldn't just forget about it. We had to remember all these tests and things we had to do and your love life is poked and prodded and all of that. So some, you know, another piece of advice was have two love lives, one where you have a baby making love life and one where you actually love each other. Mm. Um, and if, if you feel like those can't be one and the same, which we did reach the point where we didn't feel that they could be, then to remember that you want to have a marriage at the end of this thing. Mm. Um so it really helped to lower my expectations of what my husband was supposed to do and be and how he was supposed to grieve. And I also noticed in the process that his spiritual gift is the gift of service. And so I would notice things like uh, when we had a failed adoption, I didn't have to shut the nursery door. I would just find it shut. You know, mm-hmm. there were things that he did. He never made a deal over. I might not have noticed if I hadn't, you know, begun to see that service is a form of love. It's not my love language, but I had to recognize that he was trying to love me according to my love language, but he was also loving me according to his. And I needed to see it or I was going to miss a lot of expressions of love. Were you able to identify what needs 
you had, because I think mm-hmm. so many of us go into marriage yeah. with, well, I know what I don't want. Yeah. But yeah. then it comes, crisis usually invites us into what do I want? Right. Yeah. Well, I learned in the process. I can think of one story. For example, um, my husband, he, he likes to fix it. And so he would hear a lot of men are that way, right? No, yeah, no, I don't think some, I don't think many yeah. men are wanting to do that. And so, <laughs> so if I would tell a story like a failure with the doctor or something, he would be angry at the doctor and want to call him up and chew him out. And so there was one day when I was taking regular shots of progesterone to try to keep myself from miscarrying, and I realized I had gotten too low in the liquid progesterone, and you couldn't just go to the pharmacy and get this stuff. And I had waited too long to order it, so I. Called called all over town looking for a pharmacy that had it. And I finally found one that was a 30-minute drive away. So I drove over there. I stood in line. And when I you know, handed the prescription to the doctor, he said, oh, you're the person who called. And he came back after checking. And he said, you know, I actually didn't check to make sure we had any. And we don't actually have any in stock. At which point, you know, the liquid truth started seeping out of my eyes. I didn't, you know, it was like... And, and then he's like, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, we'll find a way. Um, so he ended up sending me to a local hospital and getting me permission to for their pharmacy to release some. But I get home, and my husband says, how was your day? And I'm like, not great. And he said, what happened? And I learned by this time, I said, I'm going to tell you what happened, but I don't need you to go beat up the pharmacist. <laughs> Because I, I already, need, I already did that. I, I, yeah. <laughs> what I need from you is for you to hug me and say, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Wow. And then Good. I told him this story. And he came and he hugged me. And then afterward, he said, I'm sure glad you told me what you needed ahead of time because that is not what I would have guessed that you needed, which to me, it seemed super obvious that's what he should do. But again, two people marry each other. You're not the same. That's why one of you isn't redundant. But um, so we had to learn through the process of how do I both give and receive love uh, with a grieving spouse? Uh, I think my greatest loss was the inability to have children, but his greatest loss was the loss of his happy wife. So he's grieving that we don't have children, but he's also like, I can't reach her. I can't cheer her up. Nothing I do makes it better for her. And that was a really profound loss for him. And it took me realizing that he had two different things. He was grieving there. Um, again, for us to to start doing a better job of communicating what we needed. You said he had to face the loss of a happy wife. Yeah. Um, one of the experiences that I went through with my son being severely bullied mm. um, nine months after I married my husband, wow. he would say the exact same thing. I was mm-hmm. grieving the loss of being able to protect my son. Wow. And he was grieving the loss of the wife that he had just married. Wow. What would your – speak into men's lives mm-hmm. who are listening to this, who who go, that's me. Yeah. I, I can't cheer her up. Right. I can't reach her. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of my husband's journey was realizing there was nothing he could literally do for me. Um, he could study to learn my love language. My love language is words. Totally not him. He's a silent type. But he would learn to, again, try to love me the way I needed to be loved. And so he said, I remember the day he said to me, if we never have children, I married you because I love you. I didn't marry you so that we could have children. So I just want you to know that if you ever worry that I'm thinking I got a lousy deal here, that thought never crosses my mind. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was like, 
even if he's lying when he said that, <laughs> like, I mean, I don't think he was, but, but it was, those words were so incredible. Those, they were words. Words were my love language. And it, again, it took both of us sort of studying. So I had to learn how does my husband feel loved? I'm going to push through and I'm going to go to a movie with him tonight, even though I don't feel like going out because his love language, language is service. And, and so again, I need to try to reach him in his grief which is he doesn't have a happy companion. <laughs> and you worked through that. I mean, we no, had, we were still grieving. Yeah. The grief takes yeah, time. It does. It's, I mean, does. I told my dad one day, one mother's day, I would hate to be a pastor on mother's day or father's day yeah. because you're speaking to an audience that you don't know how many of the people listening cannot have children or have right. lost a child. Or lost their mother or estranged from their children or their mother. I mean, yeah. You know, it's interesting you should say that, Colleen, because uh, um, it's a Hallmark holiday. I think it's really interesting that it's not a day in the church calendar. Um, we do want to honor our mothers and our fathers, but um, the fact that it's become a whole day set aside for this thing that um, – isn't really focused on Christ. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it can be. I love actually what Carlos Azueta here um, at the Spanish church has done, which is to call it Mothering Day and to say everyone can be a mentor of any age. And so even if you've lost a mother or you're estranged from a mother, that doesn't mean you can't nurture, you can't uh, be somebody's mother and um, I think that is, that is, Jesus says, you know, who's my mother, who's my brothers are those who do the will of God. Like the family of God is also your, your family. It's almost like we have to, um, we, we have to set aside our issues, so to speak, that we haven't worked through and say, okay, I'll, I'll honor her or him or this day right. because it's on the calendar when yeah. God is saying, no, the issues in your soul are more important and yeah. so let's set that aside and honor me every day yeah. with how you serve and love and give and even grieve. One of the things that I came ac across about waiting, since you went through years of waiting, mm -hmm. waiting on God re requires the willingness to bear uncertainty, to carry within oneself the unanswered question, mm -hmm. lifting the heart to God about wherever it intrudes upon one's thoughts. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, mm. says Proverbs, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. While you wait for your answer to prayer, read my word, listen to my voice through scripture, through the wise counsel of people who spend time with me, and through the inner impressions of your heart as you seek my guidance. Your unanswered questions will draw you close to me, and that is a good place to be. Mm. When I read that, I know there are people listening who can feel none of God's presence because right. the darkness of grief is like the heaviest veil. Right. How do you find God in the middle of that mm. darkness? Yeah, I don't think that you always do in a sense that you may never feel like he's there. Um, and I remember somebody saying to me, you know the verses about offering to God a sacrifice of praise? It's a sacrifice. That means it costs you. That means that even if I don't sense you there, even it's, if it's so dark I can't perceive the light, I know that you are by faith. <laughs> um, and so I will worship you, not because I feel you, but because of, 
of what I know is true. And so it costs more to worship when you don't feel like God is there than it does when you're feeling it all over. Um, and so it's a unique place where you can offer a, a specific kind of sacrifice. It, it, does, it is costly and painful. And I think sometimes when people say things like, I feel like God isn't present, you know, the pat answer is then who moved? And that's so cruel because it implies that it's your fault if you feel that way. It's so shaming. It is so shaming. And I love, you know, the great Spanish mystic, John of the Cross, who wrote The, the Dark Night of the Soul. It's one of my favorite books. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of times if you've been through deep grief, it is your favorite. Like, you can really appreciate. There's a long Christian tradition, a great deep tradition that that says that this is also a normal part of the path. That there is a valley of the shadow of the death, you know, shadow of death. You are with me, but that doesn't mean I feel you're with me, uh, or I, that I can trace your hand. Uh, you know that. So you can be very disappointed with God if you have a certain expectation that if you don't feel like He's there, you're you're at fault. Um, Jesus did say, "Why have you forsaken me?" When he wasn't forsaken, the Father was present, and David wrote that. You know, David is who Jesus is quoting. David was never forsaken by God. And so part of my faith journey was realizing these laments are written for me to pray, that God is was way bigger God than I realized, that I had permission to say, I feel like you have abandoned me. And, and, and at times God is even saying, is that the best you can do? Like, come on. Like, Can't you get a little madder? Here, yeah. Here's a, here's a psalm over here. David's saying, I was a beast before thee, you know, and, and I pictured, you know, sort of a bull and matador situation. Like, I was really angry. Or Jeremiah saying, you know, you've pulled back the bow and, and aimed your arrows at me. Like, Jeremiah felt that way. And God didn't say, now, now, now. It was like he he put it in his eternal word so that we would know that this is a normal part. It's an agonizing part, but it's a normal part of that's what faith is. Like you can't you're trusting what you know to be true, even though it doesn't necessarily feel like it. Well, you just mentioned Jeremiah, and I'm thinking 42 to 49 years of ministry and not one convert. Right. I would I yeah. would think, Lord, um, right. You. The Where economics are you? of that aren't are so great, right? <laughs> yeah. Where's the supply and demand here? Yeah. I don't want to question you, but right. I really hate this yeah. right now. And giving yourself permission to say this, right. how long did that take you? Because your your wow. view, like you said, was very confined. Yeah. That was about, I think I was at uh, failed adoption number two. <laughs> so this was like, we're about year eight. And I remember I was writing, I was getting ready to, to write a Bible study for the women at my church. And it's funny that now I look back on the, it was selected Psalms. And I realized all the Psalms I had chosen were laments. I was going to say, you probably didn't choose the praise <laughs> ones. <laughs> Your love is like, unconditional. Downer of a series. But I had, um, so we had lost, a, we had lost a pregnancy. My younger sister at that time lived out in Northern California. And, and it was like three days before Christmas when the, when the adoption fell through. And so we were thinking we were going to have a baby for Christmas. The nursery's ready. We had to shut the door. My sister calls and she said, come spend Christmas with us. And I said, we don't have any money. Like we've just spent all this money on adoption. She said, what are credit cards for? They're for emergencies. Charge the trip and come see us, <laughs> which we never operated that way, but we did. So we fly out there. We get there. 
And she says, you're, you're going to be so unhappy with me. I didn't actually check to see if there's anywhere we could stay. Like she, she had said, come, we'll go skiing or something. And, and everything's full, right? Everything's, you can't book a ski trip or something two days out. And I'm like, great. So we found an efficiency apartment for my brother-in-law, my sister, and her two small children, and my husband and me. Yeah, so you're like six people with two small children shoved into this efficiency apartment hotel. And uh, the children are at the end of the bed every morning, you know, watching Barney and Friends on television. I'm like, Lord, have mercy on this. Me. I hate this. Like, yeah, it's like we now we've spent all this money and it's still not getting better. I literally threw myself across the bed and said, have mercy on me. Hmm. <clears throat> the next morning we woke up and my niece's head, chicken pox. And I'm like, <gasps> what? Yeah. And so um, that was the point at which I sent everybody to the slopes and I opened my Bible to say, I just need to prepare one of these studies so that at least I feel like I got something done. You know how like college students will take a bunch of books <laughs> to home with home for Christmas and actually never study, but it's sort of like that. So, and the first Psalm happened to be Psalm 22. And I opened it up and the first words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from like my groanings? And that was exactly how I felt. And that was like the beginning of my journey through the lament psalms of you have permission to pray this way. This is not something new that you're going through. This is this is what people of faith through the centuries have experienced. And there are more. I had ta I've been taught the ACTS acrostics. It's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Lament is nowhere in there. Yeah, if but I pray this way, exactly. It'll get answered. Yeah. And where that's the appropriate way to pray to God, and it and lament is the most common form of prayer in the Psalms of complaint to God, of crying out in agony. So that's where that began for me was praying those Psalms. And so, where did that lead you in your relationship with not just the Lord, but your family, with you interpersonally? Yeah, I felt a freedom because I realized I had permission to tell the truth about what I thought about God. Yeah. And that, again, God was saying in a lot of ways, you you're not even strong enough in your in your anger, in your expression. Uh, here are some Psalms that are really, you know, David know. knocks it exactly, out of the park. Exactly, he does. <laughs> Kill him, um, destroy him, words knock you him out. never see on calendars, right? <laughs> They're never on the verse of the day. And that's part of it, right? My devotional books, you know, the church has a long history of praying the Psalms, but in the last century, we've been much more focused on devotional books, which is fine, except that they usually leave out those sorts of communications with God. And right. Psalm 88 doesn't even end with praise. It just sort of ends on everything looks hopeless. And I loved that, mm -hmm. that I was allowed to pray and not even have a happy ending in my prayer. That I could just express how I felt, my anger, and just leave that there. What did that do with your relationship with the Lord? Because I remember yeah. going through experiences of betrayal and mm -hmm. loss so deep that Psalm 90 and 91 were mm. very vivid mm. expressions of anger yeah. and frustration. Mm. But I felt closer to the Lord right. as I prayed that out to yes. him. Yes, yes. Yeah, I was thrilled to learn he was way bigger than I thought. 
And he was way emotionally secure in himself than I thought, that God wasn't rattled by me rattling uh, at him, um, and that it wasn't an evidence of my lack of love for him or my lack of faith in him. It actually showed that we had a relationship. That you could actually I, express. I had the freedom. I hate this. Yes. I hate what you have And allowed. I'm mad at you. Like if like you say you love me and you're allowing me to be utterly miserable, I'm trying to have a high view of the family. We have a loving relationship, ready to welcome a child, while the world is aborting babies. Again, what is with your supply and demand, Lord? It makes no sense <laughs> to me. You need a new marketing manager. Yeah. I'm telling no one yeah. to trust you. Yeah. I've, I've said yeah. those yeah. words. <laughs> and he's like, are God's ways above our ways? Yep. Yeah. As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's pretty far. So I don't have to understand it, but I have permission to not understand it and say, I don't like that I don't understand it. And he doesn't go anywhere. And he doesn't go anywhere. He's not saying I'm a failure. He doesn't hate me. It, I mean, all the, all the things in a relationship. What if I was in a marriage where my husband is not allowed to express that he's upset with me? Mm. That's, that's not a relationship. It's a very one-sided, one-way street. It's very conditional. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that we talked about when we – spoke earlier was on um, our prayers and wishing. And Henri Nouwen, in his book, Finding My Way Home, Pathways to Life and the Spirit, says, waiting is open-ended. Open-ended waiting is filled with wishes. I wish that I had a job. I wish the weather were better. I Mm -hmm. wish the pain would go away. We're full of wishes and our waiting easily gets entangled in those wishes. We want Mm -hmm. the future to go in a very specific direction. And if it does not happen, we are disappointed and slip even into despair. And I wanted to add anger, frustration, and a lot of words that we don't say in church. (laughs) (laughs) What will life be like if I don't get the things that I wish for? One of the reasons we have such a hard time waiting is that we want to do these things that will make the desired event take place and thus satisfy our wishes. In the end, our waiting is really not open-ended. Instead, our waiting is a way of controlling our future. Ooh. <laughs> Ow. That's when I close the book. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, now you're stepping on toes. Right? But at the same yeah. time, we pray with these wishes. Lord, I pray yeah. that you will heal my son. Yeah, when the Lord wish. is saying... That's a good that that prayer I understand on a human level. Yeah. But if I healed him, Colleen, yeah. you would not have mm-hmm. to address your pride. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't have yeah. to address your control and yeah. the illusions that you right. have of prayer. Yeah. How did how did this all change some of or how did the illusions of life? Oh, come I to the loved surface? the illusion of control and I wanted it back. <laughs> I wanted to think that, you know, in 2.3 years after I got married, we could start a family and face them, you know, space them two years apart. And Not that you um, had anything planned. Not that I had anything <laughs> planned. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't it was a, that it was a bad or evil plan. I think that was part of the hardest part for me. You know, James talks about your selfish desires, but the things we were desiring weren't selfish we, we wanted a healthy family. We wanted to glorify God through our family. We wanted to use our marriage to pour out love on a child. And I think that's part of why. So why part was even harder because it wasn't that we wanted a bad thing. Healing for your son is a wonderful thing. Like there's a day coming when that will be the reality. Like we should long for those things. But, but it's also true that, you know, we live in a broken world and that 
um, again, God's ways are not our ways. And so when I think, for example, of my super narrow views of what marriage was and how much pain I could have inflicted on singles if I had gone through life thinking that this was God's ideal for women, I could have hurt a lot of people. Like God was definitely molding and shaping me. Uh, there's no doubt that that I'm a different person in terms of character through that. But that actually wasn't that comforting me to me to know that God is working that for good. The only thing that really provided lasting comfort to me was it's a mystery, mm. right? It, it's a mystery. You're, no matter how logical you try to be, you're not going to figure it out because God is so far beyond you. You don't know what he's doing. I had no idea I would someday be a professor at Dallas Seminary. I'd be discipling the nation's leaders. Like, you know, what a beautiful, in this life, uh, picture that I can see now of God's purposes. And I know most people don't even get a this life picture. We just have to wait for heaven. God had definitely good and beautiful purposes for me and to build his kingdom through me and what I was learning. But but even even though I knew that the scripture taught that he was going to work it for good, again, the, the greater faith thing for me was I needed to know. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to say, well, maybe it's happening because it's X, Y, or Z, just to say, I don't know why it's happening. I don't have to figure it out. And um, it, it kept coming back to the gospel. Is God good? Yes. How do I know God's good? What did he stop at to take care of my need? Uh, nothing. <laughs> including the death of his only son. Like every baby I'd conceive was lost. There is no way I would give one of those for somebody else, right? And here God was giving his son for me. And so it's like if God didn't stop at anything for my good, then I have to trust that that all the lesser things that I'm dealing with, you know, like the most important thing in history is the death of his son. So anything I'm dealing with is a, is a lesser thing. So why would God stop at anything um, for for His glory and my good? So, so what do you help. say to the to the woman or the man who has a wife who is sitting there and they're miscarrying right now? Mm-hmm. I don't say anything. I usually just show up if I can mm-hmm. and just sit there. You know, you think of Job's friends. They did awesome the first week. They showed up and they said nothing. Great. A week is a really long time. To sit there with somebody. Yeah, after three days, the fish usually <laughs> yeah, stinks. Exactly. So, they go. <laughs> so yeah, a week is a long time. Exactly. We're super critical of them, but they sat a long time before they opened their mouths. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are no words. But people showing up um, is so meaningful. What does that it's look like, like? What does that look like? Well, it looks like sometimes you go to the funeral of somebody you don't know because it's the loved one of somebody you do know. Or you show up with food. Uh, I remember one time I, when I lost a pregnancy— one of the guys in our church who loved to cook showed up with a chocolate cake at the door. And he said, I wanted you to, to bring you something. I didn't want to bring you a plaque you'd look at and it would remind you or be a trigger. I wanted you to I wanted to bring you something you could consume, enjoy, <laughs> let it make you fat. I don't care. But you know, t- as you taste it, no, we love you. But then there's no reminder left over. And he, you know, he drove 30, so he spent his morning doing it. He drove 30 minutes to bring it. He thought of it. Um, Time, people present. showing up and mowing the lawn because my husband didn't feel like mowing the lawn. People who hugged my husband and realized this wasn't just a loss for me. He often got lost in the picture. There was one Mother's Day. We walked into church and the bulletin said the altar flowers this morning have been given in memory, uh, in honor of those who have children who are conceived on earth but born in heaven. 
and acknowledge, I know, right? And they, it was the family with the most children in the church thinking about us, you know, we who had no children. So they knew that they couldn't be around us with their many kids. That would be painful, but that they could do something from afar. Yeah, super, super kind. I mean, I don't even have any words yeah. for that kind of yeah. sensitivity and empathy. Yeah. Because you cannot fix what God has you allowed. You can't fix it. And I mean, the, if he allows yeah. the thorn, right. it's right. his choice to take it out right. or to allow it to stay. Right. Now, you've gone into a lot of other areas of work. Talk to me about some of the right. studies that you've done on human sexuality, okay. on ethics. Yeah. So as part of infertility, I had to recognize that I had somehow picked up a twisted view of womanhood. And I had to go back to Genesis and relook at, then what is the purpose of woman? Well, her purpose is to glorify God. Who is she? She's an image bearer. Um, what does reproduction look like ultimately? Well, it looks like making worshipers, <laughs> multiplying worshipers, right? And, and for some, that's physical reproduction, and some it's, you know, discipling the nations to glorify God. And so as part of that, I also had to look at, well, is reproduction the purpose of marriage, which some people told me, right? You were, you know, the purpose of marriage is to have children. I was like, well, I hope not. Like it's a purpose, but it's like, not. Why would purpose. God design something like that that wouldn't be able to happen in his right. perspective anyways? Like exactly. why say that? Right. That's not biblical. Right, right. So, you know, as I re-looked at marriage, I kept coming across the word knowing and oneness. And every time you would see these marriage passages, you'd see two become one. One, even the head body analogy is it's oneness. Um, it's it, You're interconnected. And so looking at how can my husband and I be united in this? It doesn't mean that we are interchangeable, but that we are united as one. And so we began to look at how can we do international missions? How can we you know, how can we do good in the world? What educations do we need in order to be the most effective disciples we can be? And as part of that, I wrestled, I had to wrestle through what about bioethics as it relates to infertility and in vitro fertilization and stem cell research that, you know, you mentioned the novels a little earlier. And my co-author was a medical doctor and we saw stem cell research coming down the pike. And we knew that if we wrote a nonfiction book on that, Maybe his mother and my dad would buy it, but you know, it would be a cure for insomnia. But what if, what if, what if we told what we knew uh, through story? And so that, that was part of you know, bioethics through story because it was complicated. We knew that these issues can't be covered in a soundbite. And a novel is a nice long way of exploring in people's lives. You know, what does it look like? What are the decisions that you make? One of the things that came out of that study of scripture for me was I changed how I began to talk about abortion because Jeremiah, you know, does talk about in the womb, you knew me. So a, a human life is life in the womb. But I had Orthodox Jewish friends who were infertility buddies who would say, well, Sure, after conception, but that doesn't affect the Petri dish. That doesn't affect fertilization. And that threw me for a loop for a while until, again, I went back to Genesis and I was looking at the passage. I actually happened to be taking Hebrew at the time. We were looking at the passage where God is giving dominion to humans. And I noticed all the things he's giving them dominion for was stuff like birds and plants and animals and humans weren't on the list. 
And so instead of saying life begins at conception, which some thought meant implantation, um, I changed my rhetoric to God has not given humans dominion over human life. Mm -hmm. He gives them dominion over animal life and plant life, and we're supposed to do a good job with it. But he has not... Uh, even if you look at capital punishment, it's a community thing. It's never an individual. We call that murder, right? Mm. Um, and so just looking at, so how does that affect the Petri dish? Well, that says that I can do in vitro if I'm taking a very high view of life. But we're not going to throw away embryos. We're not going to assume if they don't look very good. We're just going to let them you know, thaw out and die. Or we're going to treat them like persons. Um and fortunately, you know, we worked with doctors who we sat down and basically said, this might mess up your success rates because success rates don't always mean they respect life. Sometimes their rates are higher because they're only looking at the A quality stuff. And we had a doctor who was a believer uh, in one case. And, and we just said, you know, it's as important to us that we live with no regret, regrets as it is that we come out of here with a child. In fact, it was more important to us that we do what's right. Um, and then as we were in the process of getting ready to do in vitro, there was a new test that was out that determined that my issues were actually immunological and that that wouldn't help, mm -hmm. that I was conceiving. Um, and it was just that my body was treating the embryo like a disease. Mm -hmm. So we never actually ended up once we'd worked through all the ethics of it. Um, and there was a time we began to feel like there's an ethical checklist and the Lord is taking us through all of these so that it's, we work through all these issues so that when we talk and write about these things, like, oh yeah, that was that June. Oh yeah, that one happened to us in July. And um, Expensive it, as it was. As expensive <laughs> as it was, yeah. Well, and now, like I was just mentioning this, um, Sam Sternberg, who is doing a lot of research from mm -hmm. UC Berkeley on this um, CRISPR-Cas9, which mm -hmm. is altering the DNA, which also affects the um, stem cell and then yeah. could possibly be a cure for things like AIDS, Huntington's disease, right. um, cystic fibrosis. My son was checked for cystic fibrosis. And yeah. at the time he was tested, it was death before five. Wow. I hear this and think, if his genetics are altered, he could live. Right. There is such a conflict with that internally yeah. for me. Yeah. What yeah, do you say to one. that? Um, I think that our ultimate guide on that sort of thing can't be, is it a good end? It has to be, is it a good means and is it a good end? So it's teleological. Right. The ends yeah. cannot justify Can't, the means. can't justify the means. But I think sometimes where we miss it in Christendom is we don't acknowledge that is a good end. Okay, and and well done, scientists, for trying to bring about a good end. That that's good. Well done. Um, but uh, who's going to be the first human <laughs> we try this out on? Like the first two thousand humans that we, oops, you know, we discovered that what might work for a monkey doesn't really work for humans. Like who's going to line up to be that? How ethical is that? Um, and, and spiritually speaking, how divine is that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. People would say to me things like, you know, you shouldn't play God. And I'm like, I wouldn't use that language because even that, like. <laughs> that assumes yeah. you are. Yeah. That already <laughs> like, assumes it. Yeah. God, you know, you can't even pretend. 
Um, but but I would but I would talk more about is that an area where I'm given dominion as a human being? Uh, I would I I would put that in the no category. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Sandra, I could ask you so many more things. Uh, trying to make sense of loss because yeah. even deciding if there is a possible result that could come from uniting right. stem cells with right. CRISPR-Cas9 and all of right. that stuff. One of the things that I came across was this quote, put a cause and effect to it, lung cancer. Well, we assume, did he smoke? Or he must have been a smoker. If someone yeah. has a stroke, we assume, oh, right. well, how old was he or she? Mm-hmm. Or we think that if we can establish a cause and effect, right. then we can make sense of suffering. When, in fact, I don't think the Lord tells us we're supposed to make sense of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you see that with me me too in church too these days, right? People, it's like, oh, you were sexually assaulted. What were you wearing? <laughs> Had you been drinking? You know, <laughs> But but if if my purse gets stolen, nobody says to me, "Did you leave it open?" Like you know, we don't assume that 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 it's my fault. Like it's the even if I did, if I left it accidentally on a bench, it's still the thief that did what was evil. So how do um, we as a church come together yeah. and and comfort those who have gone through shocking things that have left them in suffering without yes. assuming an end or a cause. Right. right. And I mean, there there is a verse about you reap what you sow. There are times we would all acknowledge that, you know, I've done stupid things and I've had to live with the consequences. Um, but to, to go there when someone's suffering, mm-hmm. like even if that's true, even if that's true, look at how the prodigal son's father welcomes him. He doesn't say, you know, you're bad. <laughs> um, you brought this on yourself, son. He welcomes him home because the son figured out the cause and effect. Um, I, I think most of us, if we're under the discipline of the Lord, we know exactly where it's coming from. And in fact, for me, it was the opposite. It was I assumed wrongly that I was being disciplined even when I wasn't. Because I kept searching myself to see what could I have done that caused this? Because if I'm suffering, it must be my fault. And so many people, that's that's how we process because because we do assume it makes us, I think it makes us feel more in control when we assume there's always a cause and effect relationship. Because if, if there is a cause and effect relationship, that means I can prevent it from happening again. And that makes me feel better. Or you should and, have. So now I have an answer to say. Yeah, Instead right. of, I have no clue. I right. have no control. Right. But let's walk together through right. this. Right. Yeah. Again, no need to say anything. <laughs> no need to say anything. Just show up. Just show up. And I'm here if you need me, if you want to talk. I'm happy to listen. I think people, when I did begin to feel comfortable expressing anger, people were very quick to try to move me from anger. And, you know, the verse that talks about weep with those who weep, that was the best thing people did with for me. Because when somebody would show up and weep with me, I didn't feel like I needed to apologize for crying. Mm-hmm. If they're crying, then I don't feel stupid crying because they're crying too. And it told me they're, they're seeking to feel. They're entering into my pain enough that they're feeling some bit of what I'm feeling. And so when people showed up, when they didn't ask, what can I do? They just did. <laughs> Um, even if the even if the mac and cheese wasn't what we needed, instead of saying what kind of food do you need and making me think about it, they just right? Because did you it, really right? can't think about anything. You can't think about managing other people's comfort, right? But but showing up, 
or or actually not staying too long. Like uh, one of my hospital stays, you know, my my medical doctor co-author was joking about there's a gift of presence, but there's also the gift of absence. And <laughs> so <love> never <laughs> stay like more than seven minutes unless the patient asks you, no, no, please stay. Like you, you come, you've shown up, you've let them know you're, you've gone to the trouble, but you don't suck all their energy up by sitting there and staying for four hours and um, you make it short unless they ask you right. to stay. What is, as we come to a close to this talk, even though I could talk to you forever, what mm-hmm. are the, um, because when we talked earlier, you mentioned talking and mentoring younger women. Mm-hmm. What are some of the common themes that you're addressing and yeah. how do you address them? So interestingly enough, at, at Dallas Seminary, I'm mentoring men and women. And some of, the, some of, our, some of our young men uh, haven't had a mother figure. And they need to know what it looks like to be Jesus with skin on over 35 and to to know that a woman who's almost 60 can deeply love you in the faith and there's nothing weird about it. And so often, often what I think a lot of mentoring looks like is teaching people how to, to lament mm-hmm. and uh, that it's it's not only you're not only given permission to do it, but um, it's a long church tradition of going all the way through the Psalms once a month. Uh, and so I definitely start with Psalms because I think that's the emotional life of the people of faith, teaching people how to express everything from praise to grief to disappointment to anger to rage to wanting to get revenge. I mean, every emotion you can imagine is there. Um, so I think if if we can teach people how to pray um, and also teaching them who their God is, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, it, it's a triune God. He's a triune God. He's, he's not um, the American God of, you know, of Santa Claus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a little like, rabbit's foot in my back pocket. Exactly. Yes. And and maybe if I'm a, a good person as I define it, then he owes me something. That whole cause and effect thing, and and everybody, everybody, you know, is reunited with their friends in the end. <laughs> so God is just all happy endings, and He's not just. And um, it was good for me to see that I am not God. And, and God can do with my life whatever he wants to do because he's God. He's not mean. He is loving. But it can feel really mean. But he has every right to do whatever he wants. He's my maker. He's the maker of the world. And, you know, Job's little nature walk <laughs> was not full of answers, right? Mm-hmm. It was, did you make the ocean? Did you put the boundaries on it? Where do I store this? questions. Snow? Is that he right? You counted them. Good for you. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. And and so when you get when that is your God, you're struck dumb. Okay, I repent in silence. Don't you think it begins then, in all things, our position in Christ? Right. Yeah. Is we are under His authority. We are made by Him, and we are not entitled to an answer, or a happy ending, or. Whatever that's promised in heaven, that's right. the hope for heaven. Right. That's why Paul longed for heaven, mm-hmm. because then all things are made right. But right. here on earth, this is not that day. <laughs> it's not that day. Yeah, Sandra, you are so wonderful. You oh, write for, and they can God. find you at Aspire A S P I R E the number two dot com. Is that right? Yes, it's based off of the verse Aspire to the Quiet Life. 
That's fantastic. And I just want to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much for sharing with us about how you journeyed from infertility, which really was a symptom of the deeper connection with Christ, which is, are you going to allow me to be your God? And as you have, look at the ministry now. You touch people who travel the world, mothering and caring for them and touching their souls in a way that had he allowed you to have children, there wouldn't have been maybe time. I don't know. Because I don't know the solution of what would have happened. Is there anything that you would like to offer to say to someone who is in the wrestle right now, in the tug of war with God? Yeah, just that um, I, I, there was a there was a line uh, in a novel that I read about a couple that um, they were climbing a, the stairway and it that was like nailed to a tree, like the steps to a rope swing. And in the middle of the night, they this loving couple go out there and they just look at the the lake and they see the stars, and they just climb the rope and fling themselves into the stars. <laughs> Is how it was written, and um, fling yourself into the stars. Like God, you are God is a mysterious God. He's huge. He's big. You don't have to understand him. His ways aren't going to make sense. But you are stranded on omnipotence. Mm-hmm. Stranded on omnipotence. I will never forget that statement. Thanks. That is so good. And yet we have so much hope because He knows where we're going, and we don't. And we don't have to. We don't have to know. So we, ha- we can let go of that illusion. Well, thank you so much for My taking pleasure. your time. Thank you, and thank you for your life and ministry. Well, grateful. please connect with Sandra at Aspire2.com and also with Reframing Ministries at Insight.org, which is our um, email address, and ReframingMinistries.com, which is the page where we will have show notes and a way for you to get to connect with Sandra. I would also like to encourage you as we close this to um, rate and review the podcast that you've listened to with Reframing Ministries. It helps us get the word out and it helps other people realize there is hope and help as they trust God through the darkest seasons of their lives. It's been so good to be with you today. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time.